listen to the words from a poem written in 1883, really striking uh, in their depth and sort of grasp of one of the elements of humanity. These were written by a 23-year-old woman. She had met a young widow on a train ride, and the interaction with that other young woman, not far different in age than hers, who had already suffered the loss of a husband, was was, uh, great on her. She went back. She couldn't keep the appointment, the whole reason for her train ride. And as she sat down, she wrote these words. Laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. For the sad old earth must borrow its mirth, but has trouble enough of its own. Those words are by Ella Wheeler Wilcox and her poem, Solitude. You know, there are things that we tend in our comfort-loving humanity perhaps to askew or to avoid. And she nails it on the head here, I think. If if we're talking about things that are fun, they're joyful, they're easy to listen to, maybe even hypothetical things, you can probably get someone else to go along with what you're talking about. They can enter in, they're glad to. But on other subjects, it's a very different thing altogether. We are in week four of a five-part series called God's Will for Your Life Is. And so we've already looked at, we've looked at the Scriptures that say God's will for your life is repentance and faith, regeneration or salvation in week one. And building on that, God's will for your life as one who's in faith in Christ was transformation into the image of Christ. We're always being transformed. God means that transformation to make us more like Christ. We also looked at while we abide in Christ from John 15, God's will for our life is fruitfulness. So those topics are pretty easy sells. I mean, I know there's been some conviction. You talk about what does that look like? There's some conviction. That's a good thing. But if you say God wants to save you from the penalty of your sin, okay, sign me up. God wants to make me more like Christ. That's a good thing. I'm, I'm with you. You know, or fruitfulness. Who doesn't want to be fruitful? But the topic this morning, it's a different sell. It's a, it's a hard sell. Because this morning we're looking at this inevitable fact. If you read your Bibles, God's will for your life is suffering. I didn't stutter. This isn't a mistake. You're in the right place and this is what we're looking at this morning. God's will for you and for me as disciples of Jesus Christ is to suffer. And when suffering enters your life and mine, it's not a cosmic mistake. God didn't go to sleep on the job. He didn't forget about you and me. God intends, God causes and allows all things in this world so that in part, you and I will suffer. Now, when you hear that, when I hear that, you know what I do emotionally? The gates come down. I've just turned you off, and I'm just sort of semi-listening. So what I'd ask you to do this morning as we talk about this is not necessarily put your, your mind or your thoughts in neutral, but sort of be aware of our own propensity to defend against this thought that God might want me to suffer that God might want and will for your life that suffering come in. Not a mistake, but very intentional. Suffering's a huge theme, and we're going to be very, very narrow in our view of this this morning. Let me start by just giving a definition. Suffering defined in the dictionary to undergo or feel pain or distress, to sustain injury, to undergo a penalty. If you look at the use of this word in the New Testament, it really means just to go through anything. And it could be positive or negative. But in the English use, we always mean to suffer, almost always, that it's a negative. It's painful. It's the loss of something. Or it's bearing something we don't want. But it's painful. It's enduring something that for one reason or another is painful or hard to accommodate. We might feel the pain of having something we do not want. God's allowed something in our life we don't want, we wouldn't ask for. Or we might experience the suffering of not having something that we do want. And time goes by and God doesn't answer that prayer and we don't get the thing that we really, really want. P. 
Peter Kreef, for me, really helpfully defines suffering like this. Suffering is the difference between what we want and what we get. Suffering is the difference between what we want and what we get. I want A, but I get B. I don't want A, and I get it anyway. The difference, it's like a math equation. What do I want? What do I get? The difference is suffering, or that's our experience of suffering. Now, on the front end of this, it's really important to say, and and I think in part because this gives us an empathy for other humans that travel this earth with us, guys, that suffering is universal. There's no one that lives or draws breath on this earth that does not suffer. If you're born on this earth, you're going to suffer. If you live on this earth, you're going to suffer. It's the universal experience and condition. And you're going to suffer, all of us, two ways here, common to all people, suffer from two different directions, if you will. So one of those directions is external, and one is internal. So for instance, in Job 5, verse 7, we're told that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. You know, you watch the campfire some night, and those embers and the sparks that come off it, they just drift up with that convective heat, don't they? Well, he says, as certainly as that happens, you as a man or a woman, a boy or a child on this earth, you're going to experience trouble. There's no avoiding it. It's built into the nature and the fabric of the earth we live on. This goes all the way back to the fall, doesn't it? Because in Eden originally, there wouldn't have been suffering. There wouldn't have been this thing that we call pain and suffering. It wouldn't have existed. But after the fall, we know, right, that sin brought death. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But sin brought this element of death into our experience. And you think about, like in science, entropy means things wind down, they fall apart. There's chaos, there's confusion now built into the fabric of our life. There's death, things break, there's pain in childbirth, there's thorns on the roses, there's weeds in the garden. You can't get away from it. Anyone who lives on this earth is going to suffer in this general external way because our world is broken. And it's not going to be fixed anytime soon until Jesus comes back. And there's a new heaven and then there's a new earth after that and that's what we're looking forward to. But this world is broken, so we experience suffering. All of us do by the very nature of the world we inhabit. Sickness, disease, the sinful acts of others, accidents, things happen, right? That's our world. That's suffering. There's also an internal source for some of our suffering as well. Proverbs 5. Matter of fact, you know, Proverbs is such a great book. And you get to the end of, I can't remember if it's Proverbs 1 or 2. Uh, Wisdom says to the person that's rejected her counsel, when you call out for help, I'm going to laugh. I, I, I spoke to you. I tried to woo you. I tried to tell you how to live well. And you chose not to. And now your day of calamity has come. And, and this is what you get. And in Proverbs 5 verses 8-14, through 14, there's a description of a young man who did not listen to his parents' counsel about the kind of women to avoid. And he's lamenting because he is suffering. He's in pain because of his sinful choices. So some of the pain and the suffering you and I are going to experience in this life is due to our own sin. We choose to do things that are sinful because we're sinful. We're sinners. We have this propensity... We will suffer the fruit of our own sinful choices. Can't be otherwise. This is the lot of everyone that walks this planet. And I think as Christians, we really should have an empathy for others. Even others who are enjoying the fruits of their sinful choices. It could be sickness, it could be disease, it could be pain, suffering, loss of a number of different things or ways. But we should have an empathy because we, like them, experience those same kinds of pains and suffering. Sinful choices and the broken world we live in. We're going to suffer. Now, because God loves us, because He cares for us so greatly, God has chosen that Christians should suffer in two more ways. Because God loves us, we not only will experience suffering the way everyone else on the earth does, but in God's love for us, He wants us to suffer in two other ways as well. And they're going to be also external and internal from their directions. On the external, 
Jesus was clear that if you are a Christ follower, if you name Jesus as your Lord, if you live for Him in this world, He said, you will suffer persecution. So we Christians, in addition to having an external suffering just of a broken, fractured world, we also will have suffering born of persecution for Jesus' sake. So in John 15, Jesus said this. We looked at this passage last week, I think, talking about fruitfulness. But His conversation with His friends continued. And He said, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you're a follower of Christ in this world, in this cosmos, you're going to suffer persecution. And when Jesus uses the term here, the world, the Greek is cosmos, and the thought is this, that that earth is at war with heaven. We in, in our sinful rebellion and with Satan's help, our humanity is organized in this cosmos, this world order or system in opposition to heaven. And because that's the case, Jesus says, as the representative of the Father and of heaven, if the world accepted me, they would have accepted you too. But the world, what did they do to Jesus? Rejected, scourged, and crucified. So Jesus says, because I'm the one you follow, you'll know how the world will treat you based on how it treated me. So Jesus makes no bones about this. If you're a Christian following Christ in this world, you will suffer, in addition to the common sufferings on this earth, you will suffer persecution. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is not a mistake. Um, you know, if you look back historically, what has persecution of Christianity looked like? Historically, go back, think of Fox's Book of Martyrs, think of the early record of the church in the book of Acts, seizure of property, restrictions on where Christians went or what they did for a living, imprisonment, and death. Now, we think of those historically. If you say, what has the church's uh, suffering and persecution looked like? That's kind of what I tend to think about. But you know, that's also current. That's the experience of Christians around the world today, specifically and especially in the Muslim-dominated or communist-run areas of the world. This isn't uh, last century's news for them. This is today. And martyrdoms are going on today around the world just as they have been since Jesus. So that's still going on today. Jesus says, if you live for Me in this Christ-rejecting, God-rejecting world, you will suffer persecution. Now, we should be clear about this and persecution related to us. Uh, it would be hard to call almost anything that Christians experience in this country persecution. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Jesus said, if you live for me here, you'll be persecuted. But in comparison, it's pretty minor, isn't it? So maybe you're the butt of a joke. Maybe you're not in a certain group at work or with friends at school because of your faith or your ethics, your morality. Uh, maybe someone raises their eyebrow at you in mocking or in incredulity at what you believe or don't believe. Uh, that might be, though, the highest level we experience now in persecution for Jesus' name. Now, it's not that there's none, but really, compared to other parts of the world or to the church through history, it's relatively insignificant, isn't it? Now, I would also add, though, just based on where the courts and the government, the state are heading, I think the opportunity for persecution of Christians in the church is ramping up exponentially. And... I think we've got to be really careful on how we handle that. Uh, we need to read the Scriptures and remember that Jesus has called us to be witnesses to Him and to heaven. We don't necessarily correct the ills in this country or around the earth. We're Christ's representative. And, and you know, the Greek word for witness is martyr. So we are called to be martyrs for Christ in a Christ-rejecting world. And I think our opportunity for that is going to increase here in coming months and years. But listen, I'm going to rattle down a number of verses just to make this point clear. If you've got a study sheet, these should all be on there. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.5, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. Not a little. I belong to Christ. My sufferings abound. I've got a lot of them. Philippians 1.29, and by the way, remember, Philippians is written from prison. Paul's suffering imprisonment when he writes this letter. To you it has been granted. You didn't even have to ask for it. Isn't that nice? God just said, I'm going to give this to you. To you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. God has granted us the privilege of suffering for Jesus' sake and name. That's not so much in this context a burden to be born. It's a privilege to embrace. Philippians 3.10, Paul's own testimony is this, that I may know Him. This is his prayer for himself. He's in prison. He's not even asking out at this point. He says that I may know Him, Christ, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Paul says, I want to know Christ in the fellowship of His sufferings. You know, he talks elsewhere, I believe in Philippians, about the church filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ or Paul filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of the church. But it's that sense that we are called to suffer. It's almost as if there's a cup to be filled up with suffering for Christ's sake. It's not a mistake. It's intentional on God's end. From 1 Peter 2.21, some people call Peter's first epistle a theology of suffering. He writes there, you have been called for this purpose. As a Christian, we are called to this purpose. Christ suffered for you. He left you an example to follow in His steps. We are called to follow Christ in suffering. That's our call as a Christian. That's God's will for your life. This one, I can't help but chuckle every time I read this. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Peter writes, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Now Peter says to Christians, in a day in which Christians were suffering, notably, Peter says to them, don't be surprised. When you're persecuted in the least way for Christ, what's your response? Is it not always shock? Unbelief? I can't believe this is happening? Doesn't this go through our mind? If I could only explain myself to them more clearly, more fully. They'd understand. I'm a nice person. They should like me. They should love me. They've got it all wrong. There's some way I can make sure I'll get out of this persecution because it's really, it's misunderstanding. And Peter says, don't be surprised, but what are we inevitably every time suffering? And the least form comes into our life, isn't it? Surprise. And don't we say something like, what did I do wrong, Lord? Lord, what sin did I commit? Now, I think it's a great idea. You know, if you suffer sickness, if, if there's some new hardship in your life, if you go to the Lord and say, Lord, is there some sin in my life that you're trying to address through that? That's appropriate. That's a good thing. And I'm all for that. But the fact that you experience suffering does not mean that you did anything wrong. In fact, it could mean that you've done something very, very right. So surprise. Pete says, don't be surprised. We're surprised every time. And I think it's because we have not bought in to the truth that God's will for our life is to suffer. We don't believe it. At least not in a way that we apply to ourselves. Jesus said this in Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Isn't that instructive? So if everyone speaks well of me, Jesus says, welcome, you're in good company, you're in the company of the false prophets. Because they were trying to gain credibility, the affections, the ears of everyone around them. They didn't care if what they said represented God and the truth. It was all about them gaining some ascendancy as a leader in this group. So Jesus says, if everyone thinks well of you, you're not doing something that I've called you to. And just think of this for a moment. In Jesus' life, what did Jesus ever do wrong? You know, not a thing, right? Not a thing. And yet, did everyone love Him and embrace Him and speak well of Him? 
Not at all. And so again, if the world rejected him, the world will reject his followers. So if, if you don't offend anyone ever, you've got to ask yourself, do I actually know Christ and do I represent him? Do I speak the truth? Does my life smell of Christ? Am I being transformed into his image? Am I speaking Christ's words of truth? Because if I do, there's going to be some pushback from the world I live in. It's going to happen. Last, 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God should entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Those who suffer according to the will of God. God's will for your life and mine is to suffer. Now, Peter puts this in context here. He says, please don't suffer this way. Don't suffer as a criminal. Don't suffer because you've committed sin or broken the law. That's not what God's talking about. That's not God's will for your life. But there is a kind of suffering that is God's will for your life. And when that happens, Pete says, don't be surprised, don't push back, don't try and figure everything out, but entrust yourself to a loving, caring God. That's what we should do. You know, the early church understood this. Um, In Acts 5, the apostles had been preaching in Jesus' name and and the Sanhedrin had called them in and say, hey, quit talking about that Jesus. Quit speaking in His name. But they kept it up. And they healed a, a lame man. And they keep preaching in Jesus' name. And they're called back in. And they have a discussion amongst themselves again. What do we do? You know, a miracles happen. That They're putting Jesus' death blame on us. What do we do? And so, this is their conclusion. The Sanhedrin called the apostles in. They flogged them. They ordered them not to speak in Jesus' name. They turned them loose. They beat them. They whipped them. And they said, you can go now, and we don't want to see you back here again because you're preaching in His name. What was their response? Now, if that's you or me, we're, we're looking for the Christian attorneys, aren't we? We're filing lawsuit. I'm talking about now. I'm talking about major damages and settlement. Right? Or I'm, I'm doing whatever I can to get back or get even or I'm crying in my beer or my tea or my coffee, right? Because those guys, they don't understand me and they hit me and they hurt my feelings. And what's their response? Their grown-up, mature response as they know this is what they're called to? They rejoice that they've been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. So they go out from a whooping, a beating glad and filled with joy because Jesus' words in John 15, guys, how they treat me is how they'll treat you. They got it. We follow Jesus. He was scourged and rejected and we've just been beaten because we preach in His name. They got it. And they were glad. We belong to Christ and Christ belongs to us and it's shown because we just take a whooping for Jesus' sake in His name. They're rejoicing. In fact, there were times and places in the early church, no kidding, where the church leaders had to ask Christians, don't go put yourself in the position of being martyred for Christ's name to get a better resurrection. Because Christians in the early church were going to seek martyrdom, death, in Christ's name. They bought into the theology of suffering. And we'll talk about why in just a minute. But guys, does this reflect our thinking Our philosophy of suffering today, especially regarding persecution, it doesn't, does it? But this is what God's called us to. I think we've been deluded because there's a... You know, historically, you go to the 300s in Constantine, and when the church is persecuted, what's it like? It is a force for good through the world. It turns the Roman world, political, military world, upside down, doesn't it? But what happens when the church marries the state? From Constantine on, what happens? See, because then the church isn't what it's supposed to do. This faithful witness to truth. And suffering's part of that. And I think we've had this delusion that the state, the United States of America, and the church are the same thing. And they're not. They never have been. And while we can rejoice in the Christian pedigree we've enjoyed and the fruits of that Christian ethic and the Judeo-Christian ethic that we have grown up under that's informed the world we've lived in, guys, we are in a post-Christian nation this is this is not we can't legitimately call this a christian nation 
So if we're deluded that the, the country and the church are the same thing, we won't buy into this. So suffering in Christ's name here, that's our call in the States, just as it was in ancient Europe, around the Mediterranean, etc. So we can't be surprised by this, and we really need to reform our thinking according to the words of truth. You can't be political, being politically informed, well informed is fine. I'm not saying anything against that being uh, devoted as great citizens and voting and doing everything you can so that the country that we live in remains as good as it can. I'm all for that. I'm not naysaying that. But don't be confused. This country is not the church. The church is not the United States. For sure. Not now, wasn't, and won't be in the future. So God's will for our life as Jesus followers is persecution. Now, There's an internal strife that I think gets mentioned almost never. And it's a a kind of suffering that only Christians can have because it's an internal pain, pang, suffering, angst that's born of the fact that Christians, each Christian is in themselves a divided kingdom, if you will. That for the Christian, there's an old sinful disposition in what Paul calls this physical body of sin and death, and that's what we were by birth, but now on top of that, because of regeneration, there's a new Christ-born spiritual life within us inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And guys, we are a kingdom at war within itself because of that dynamic. If I'm just a sinner, if I'm unsaved, I may have a conscience, and that conscience may give me pangs from time to time, But this is a different thing altogether. I live in a state of civil war. And you do too if you have the Spirit of Christ. So when you look at Paul's writings in Romans, you know, everybody's guilty up through chapter 3. And the end of chapter 3 is Jesus is the propitiation for sin and it's faith that lays hold of of justification by faith. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to chapter 6, and should we keep sinning because God's grace abounded when our sin abounded? And no, you shouldn't because you died with Jesus. And yet, you get to chapter 7, and Paul describes this turmoil within himself. I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. You know, I'm the one in, in my spiritual inner man. I want to do what Christ wants me to do, but I've got this conflict, and I'm miserable. That's what that's what I'm saying. That's a kind of suffering only Christians can have. You get to chapter 8, and Paul says, okay, this is the deal. There's no condemnation. You've got Christ, and you have the Spirit. And when you walk with the Spirit, you don't fulfill the desires or the lusts of the flesh. Now, that's the context when we read these words in chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, and we'll skip down to 22 and 23. But let me be clear. When you get to the end of chapter 8, Paul starts talking about persecution and sword and peril and death and what can separate us from the love of Christ, right? All these external things, angels, all these things. But he's not there yet. The context here is spiritual. It's suffering related to the fact that I'm a divided kingdom within myself. So he says, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. The suffering here is not external persecution. The suffering is the war within my own soul between my new nature and its desire to please God and my old sinful self. That's the suffering. You get later down into verse 22, We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So Paul personifies this world that God subjected to to death and to curse. Remember, he cursed the earth. But he says it's as if the world itself is a person and it knows that a new heaven and a new earth is coming. And so he says, knowing that there's this new glorious entity that the earth will become... Paul says now it's as if the earth is groaning. It's suffering like childbirth. It's in pain and anguish until it becomes its new glorious self. Okay, that's creation. Then he says, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves. We want our adoption, the redemption of our body. Paul says creation groans. Why? Because it knows it's destined for something greater. 
And Paul says, we groan because we've got this civil war going on inside us. And we feel the weight and the pull of our sinful self and we know we're made now, recreated, reborn for something better. And because of that inner conflict and because of the yucky nature of my old sinful self and desires, Paul says, I groan like creation because I've got a glorious future and I can't wait till I lay hold of it and I'm shed of this old nasty thing in this body of sin and death. So guys, Christians suffer because we have a new nature. Galatians 5, it's the same thing. It's the same theology. Uh, Galatians 5, 16 and 17. So, Paul says, you're going to suffer as a Christian because you've got a new sinless nature. Guys, have you had a, the experience where you've seen some sin in your life and you say to yourself, I hate myself. I see that thing again. Maybe I'm surprised, maybe I'm disappointed, but I just say, I hate myself. Why? Because I sinned in the same way I've sinned a hundred, a thousand, a million times before, and it's still there. You know, I get this glimpse, I get this area of conviction. God shows me my sin, and I'm glad, and I repent, and I'm trying to renew my mind, and I'm going along, and what do I find myself doing again? I start sliding right into the same old sin, don't I? And I just feel like, I hate myself. How can I get away from this? Or have you ever said this? I can't wait to die. I can't wait to die. Not because I'm getting away from my friends and my family, though sometimes that might be appealing. My responsibilities, etc. But because, uh, not, not just to put, put an end to what's going on, because I know that when I die, I'm out of this suffering and I've, I've got glory in Christ's presence to come. That's the suffering Paul's talking about. Uh, uh, John Nelson Darby was a, a favorite of mine in, in my early Christian life, reading his writings. He's a really godly guy. Um, and it was he that, that said, the closer I get to Christ, the more sinful I see myself to be. You know, if we're young and naive and we gain some new spiritual truth, it's like we're on top of the world, aren't we? And then God shows us something else about ourselves and we're like, oh my goodness. Well, Darby said, the closer we get to Christ, the more fully we see Him, the more the spotlight's on our sinful self. That's the suffering we have as Christians also. So, guys, we're going to suffer. Externally in this world, we suffer because it's broken. And it's not going to be fixed till Jesus fixes it. And we're going to suffer external persecution in Jesus' name for His sake. Internally, the fruit of our own sins, everyone does, but also the war within. New sinless nature in Christ's image and likeness. Sinful nature clinging to me in this body of sin and death. So, that raises the question. And I was thrilled, I forgot, Greg Kokel will be speaking at Washburn and it'll be great because it addresses this thing. What do you make of a God who allows evil and suffering? What do we make of that? It'll be worth hearing. I hope you can attend. So, the question becomes, is God a masochist? Is God a masochist? Does, does God just enjoy pain and suffering? Is God a sadomasochist? Does He enjoy inflicting on you and me sadomasochism? Does He enjoy our pain and suffering somehow for its own sake? Is God, is He the God with the microscope? Not the microscope, the... What is it? What's the lens? The magnifying glass. Is He burning and singeing our limbs for some wicked, evil pleasure? What God means for you and me to suffer. What is with that? What does He get out of this? And what do we get out of this? How can our God and Father be loving? How can Jesus love me? and want my best, and say He means for me to suffer. What is with that? There's at least three kinds of fruit that are born from suffering. And before I forget, let me say this. If you don't hear anything else this morning, God does not waste the suffering in your life. God does not waste the suffering in your life. He uses it and He redeems it. So when you suffer and you feel like it's hopeless, know that God will not waste that. It's costly to you. And He knows that. And Jesus has suffered. And He's empathetic and He's sympathetic. God does not waste the suffering in your life or mine. There's at least three ways that I'll mention that there's fruit born from suffering. The first is transformation. We know God our Father intends us to be transformed into the image of Jesus. That's what He's doing. 
And that is the good end to which He's causing all things to work in our life, Romans 8. To be transformed into Christ's image. It's the most glorious thing that can ever happen to a human. To become like Jesus. To share His life and His glory. That's where we're heading. Well, one of the transforming processes God uses is suffering. So, Romans 5.3, Paul says, we exult in our tribulations. You say, Paul, what is wrong with you? What do you mean you exult in tribulations? And listen, the Greek word for this is thlipsis. It means to be crushed and to be pressed down. It's like a grape in a wine press. You see the, the picture. There are forces on me I cannot move. I cannot lift. I can't get away from. I can't get out from. I am crushed down, Paul says. And yet I am exulting while being crushed. Now, he's not a masochist either. Paul knows how God is going to use that. So he says, he rejoices not for the tribulation itself, but because tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about proven character. Proven character brings about hope. And hope does not disappoint. So Paul says God is using the tribulation, these crushing forces on my life to transform me and my character more into Christ's image and likeness. My character becomes more Christ-like. I become more Christ-like by the crushing influence of suffering and pain. God's using that. It's like being put in a mold. And He pushes and you say, it's uncomfortable, I don't like the way that feels, but God is molding us into Christ's likeness through that suffering. If you've been a Christian very long, you've probably learned that it's usually the most painful times of suffering in which you see the greatest leaps forward in God's work in your life. A long time ago, almost 35 years ago, before Kathy and I were married, we lived in different parts of the country, and she'd just become a Christian. She's still a Roman Catholic, and I'm not. And, and we're trying to figure things out. Are we going to get married or not get married? And we're both really feeling the heat. She's here feeling the heat from her family and my family, and, and uh, I'm a million miles away, and I, I can't come help. And, and I'm a relatively new Christian, and I'm growing, and I'm struggling but it was uh, it was a it was one of the two most painful periods in my life and yet you know when i look back in it i say man i grew more in that 6 months than probably 5 or 10 years after that the the pain and the suffering of that time is what god used to energize my growth in christ and you will have times in life in which you feel like you're being crushed and you may see no fruit at the moment in you, but God is not wasting that pain or suffering. He's using it to mold you and to energize that process of conformity to Christ's image. So there's a transforming effect to our suffering. There's also a future joy and reward. This is one that I think we just don't buy into at all today. I think... I think in our culture we have so many things instantaneous, instant messaging, instant meals, instant whatever it is. Guys, we just have not cultivated a, a forward-looking attitude. So maybe some of us are thinking about our IRA and retirement. So we're setting some funds aside and we're making plans for 20 or 30 years down the road. We need to take that mentality and then push it out into eternity to, for this, for this aspect of suffering to sort of become part of our motivation and understanding what God's doing. Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who have been persecuted. They're blessed. When people insult you and persecute you, blessed. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. Do you like it when you're persecuted when people speak ill of you? Is that a nice thing in and of itself? Nope. But Jesus says you will have a reward for that in heaven that will be worth it. So he's telling the disciples, look forward not to the pain and suffering, but to the reward that God will attach to it. Romans 8.18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul had been to heaven. 
He's seen Christ face to face. He's seen the angels in heaven. He caught up into the third paradise. He's been there. He's seen it. And from a guy's vantage point who'd been to heaven and comes back to earth and he's seen earth and the sufferings on earth from heaven's vantage point, he says, the stuff you suffer here, it's not worthy to be compared with what's coming. Don't even try. Don't try and compare your sufferings here and now to the glory that's coming. There's no comparison. Don't even start. Very similar thought in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Momentary light affliction. Okay, now Paul writes this, right? Momentary light. So, his experience? Beaten. Stoned. His, his assailants, I'm sure, assumed to death. Whipped. Flogged. Without food. Shipwrecked. Rejected. You name it. He suffered anything probably in this earth and time you can. Ultimately, martyrdom. And he says it's momentary and it's light. But it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul was attaching the elements of suffering in his life here with what he would experience later in heaven. And he says these momentary light afflictions are producing something so glorious for me in heaven and for Christ's honor that they shouldn't even be compared. 1 Peter 4.13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. I think this is the imagery, uh, maybe in today's uh, imagery, uh, like a football team, Jesus is the captain of the football team. And it's been a tough game. And everyone on His team, they've got licks, they're smeared with mud, they've got some gouges, maybe some cuts or scrapes or bruises. And the thought is that when Christians see Jesus in glory are suffering in this game of life, this spiritual warfare, those become our badges of honor just as the scars in His hands and feet and side are His badge of honor. And so the licks we take for Christ's sake here and now, when we see Him, we're glad. It's like, look! Like the apostles, I've got bruises from that beating in Acts 5. Jesus, I suffered this in Your name in the game of life, in the spiritual warfare that I was a part of in Your name and Your cause. You won't re reject those. You won't look back and say, oh, I wish I didn't have any more of those. You'd say, I wish I had a few more licks and bumps and scrapes and bruises for Christ's name in His cause. Because those are the badges of honor when we see Him. Hebrews 12, too, perhaps the preeminent verse on this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Jesus suffered death on the cross for a future joy. For the joy set before Him. He endured the most awful, overwhelming, wrathful, terrible cup of suffering anyone ever could. His ability to suffer was greater than anyone's. And the wrath of the Father, the justification for our sins poured out on Him, none of us can imagine. But Hebrews says it was a future joy that He endured death on that cross. And think of this. Jesus' certainty of His future joy, His future glory and fellowship with God the Father, His future fellowship with you and me and all the redeemed, because we're the fruit, we are the fruit of His suffering, that anticipation informed Him in the moments of His suffering. And God means for us to have that same sense of future joy in Christ's presence over our suffering now for His sake. Is that cool that if you think that Jesus suffering the worst agony ever on the cross, and yet you and I are in His mind, in His thoughts, because we are part of His future joy. You know, Isaiah talks about the Messiah that He would be cut off. There'd be no generation. And then later in Isaiah, it talks about the, the woman, the virgin, or the, the wife who's had no children. And she says, where did all these children come from? That's a picture of Christ. Cut off, no children. But what does He have now? Because of the fruits of His suffering. Well, He's got all of us. He's got all the redeemed of all the ages. We were in part, a large part of His future joy as well as His pleasing the Father, we were part of His future joy. That informed His suffering. 
Last is intimacy. And because I'm running just a little long, let me wind down quickly here. Intimacy. Job is a book about suffering, isn't it? But man, what an encouraging read. You know, if you want to be encouraged, read the book of Job. I, I, am, I never fail to be encouraged when I read through this book. It is just transforming. And Job's experience is suffering like you and I will probably never see, right? Loss of all his children, loss of all his assets, loss of all his health. Bad, bad, bad. And so we, go, we walk through that suffering with Job and with Job's would-be comforters, don't we? And I, and I love it in chapter 23. Job talks about this. He says, uh, in my suffering, I wish I could go find God face to face. Because if I could find Him, I'd have this talk with Him and I would explain to Him how things really are and why He should let me off the hook and this is all a bad mistake. And I don't think He'd shut me down. I think He'd listen to me. I think He'd give me a hearing. And, and yet when I've gone one way and looked for Him, I, I couldn't see Him. And I go another way and I look for Him and I, I can't see Him there either. And don't you and I, in the midst of suffering, don't you feel like there's a cosmic mistake? And if you could get face to face with God, you'd say, God, where are you? Uh, did you notice what's going on over here? Did you hear what she called me? Did you see what he did to me? Where are you? And oftentimes in the midst of suffering, guys, we don't, we don't necessarily always feel Christ's presence. Sometimes we feel the loss of his presence. And we think there's a mistake. But I love this in Job. So Job says, that's my experience. I'm looking for God and I can't find Him. But, Job 23.10, He knows the way I take and when He has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. I can't see God. He sees me. I can't find Him. He knows where I'm at. He's overseeing the suffering. He's testing me through it. And He's going to make my life more like gold through this. So if you're tempted, and some of you may be in this now, you may feel like my life's fallen out, the bottom's out, life's not what I wanted, I'm suffering right now, Mike. And I'd say, listen, one, God can never leave you. Jesus said, I'll always be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. The Spirit is in you. The Spirit will never leave you. You're stamped with Jesus' name, His ownership. Can't happen. He can't leave. Our experience of His intimacy may change, but this is the deal Job says. Even if we feel that we can't draw near to Christ in our suffering and Jesus seems far away, He's actually drawing near. Even if you don't feel it in the moment, Christ is drawing near in your suffering. He's not lost you. He's not forsaking you. He's drawing near to you and He knows what He's doing. And if He's turned the heat up in your life or mine through suffering, He's trying us like gold. He's getting rid of things we don't need anyway so that we can become more like Jesus. This is the thing about suffering, by the way. Guys, when the bottom of your life falls out, what do you say to yourself? What's the bottom line? What can you not deny? What can you not get away from? Because this is what suffering does. It strips away our idols. Your idols won't save you in the midst of suffering. They'll cave. They won't hold you up. Your idols won't help you. Idols are stripped away in suffering. I, uh, suffering removes the pleasures that keep us from knowing more of God. Guys, I love good stuff. I love comfort. I'm there. Good food, soft bed, whatever. I'm, I'm a creature of comfort. I love it. Suffering strips away our dependence on comfort to the degree that comforts keep us from knowing Christ more fully. Suffering strips those away. We tend to know God most fully when we feel the need of Him most fully and almost always you'll find that to be in times of suffering. Almost always. There are times in my life when I'm doubting one thing and another. And you know, it's just like Peter and John 6. So Jesus has intentionally offended all the crowds that have been following Him with the happy meals. He's been feeding Him. Loaves and fish, right? And they keep following. They want another meal. But He offends them and they all go away. And so Jesus says to the disciples, do you want to go too? And so Pete, Pete says, this is the deal, Lord. Where would I go? Because I'm stuck, Peter says. I have no place else to go because I know something. I know who you are. I have no option. I can't trick myself to go do something else. You see, I know something that... Nothing else can shake. 
So guys, when suffering comes into your life, what can you not get away from? I hope that this works for you the way it does for me. I end up saying, I can't deny I know who Jesus is. I know what Jesus did for me. I know He died on the cross. I can't deny the resurrection. I'm stuck with these things. That's what suffering is meant to do. It brings us down to the foundation. What's our life built on? What can you not escape? What can you not get away from? Suffering reduces us down to our bare essential. Where are we really at? What do we really value? If you know Christ, that's where you're stuck. God, I don't know how you're using this, but I know who you are. And I can live with that. Guys, the question for us at the end of the day on this topic, God's will for your life is suffering. The question is not, why do we suffer? The question for me is, how is it that we suffer so little? Not why. How is it that we suffer so little? The next time you feel a little bit of persecution, don't defend yourself. Rejoice. And the next time you're suffering the pangs of that internal warfare, thank God that you've got a new nature so that there's a war going on at all. And the next time you see someone in suffering, be careful not to be Job's type of comforters. And we're well-intentioned, guys, and we can get this wrong. And if someone does this to you, give them some grace. You know, somebody comes along and they want to explain life to you in your moment of suffering. It's like, that's the last thing I needed to hear. You know, if someone's suffering, you can draw near. You can just say, I just want to be here for you. And I'll pray for you. And if there's anything I can do, I'd be willing to do that. But our suffering should draw our empathy out to others who are suffering as well. Let me close with this. This is the conclusion of Miss Wilcox's poem, Solitude. There is room in the halls of pleasure for a long and lordly train, but one by one we must all file on through the narrow aisles of pain. This, is not, this pain is not something to be feared. This suffering is not something to try and get away from. God isn't allowing us to suffer because He doesn't love us. God's will for our life is suffering because He does love us. Father, we thank You that Jesus has come and borne the ultimate pain and suffering which was separation from You when He became sin on our account as He hung crucified for us on the cross. Lord Jesus, we bow humbly before You and thank You for your sin-bearing role on our behalf. Lord Jesus, thank you that we'll never suffer the penalty of our own sins. Those of us who have fled to you for peace, for forgiveness. Father, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know that peace, I pray your Spirit draws them now to trust Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And Father, we, we say with the saints of the ages, Lord, we, we accept the cup of suffering because we know you love us in it. And Lord, at the same time, we would say with our beloved apostle and brother John, come Lord Jesus. Amen.